Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. When people decide to go to a Broadway show, an off-Broadway show for that matter, they use a lot of different, uh, different input to make that, that decision, what show to go to. Certainly things we say here at XM28 hopefully help you make a decision what show to see. The music we play on this channel may have something to do with it. You may read reviews in the newspapers or in magazines, maybe word of mouth. But one of the biggest factors in deciding what to see is advertising. And today we have the two key people in the advertising business as far as theater is concerned, the CEOs of Sereno Coin, Nancy Coin, and of Spotco, Drew Hodges. Nancy, Drew, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Let me just run past very quickly a list of the different shows that you guys represent currently on Broadway. For Sereno Coin, Nancy Coin shows like Beauty and the Beast, Hairspray, Mamma Mia, Spamalot, 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, Light in the Piazza, The Lion King, Phantom of the Opera, The Producers, Wicked, Jersey Boys, Odd Couple, Sweeney Todd. Drew, in your case, for Spotco, little shows called Avenue Q, Chicago, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Color Purple, Barefoot in the Park, Kane Mutiny Court Martial coming up, Cheetah Rivera, Dancer's Life, Doubt, Rabbit Hole, Ring of Fire. Basically, the advertising game, but focused on the theater. Tell us what, what you basically look for when you decide how to advertise a particular Broadway show. Is there any rule of thumb, or does it vary from one show to the next? Well, every show is different, mm-hmm. but but we're not really in the advertising game. When you deal with Madison Avenue agencies and talk to them, you see right off that there's a huge difference between what we do and what they do. First of all, our products can close on Saturday night. Mm-hmm. So there's an urgency, there's a sense of immediacy to what we do that makes us a very integral part of a Broadway show. We're not the agency that is called in at the last minute. We're there from the very beginning, and we try to do everything we can to get the word out. Um, it's, it's, we have a lot of avenues open to us now that we didn't before. Uh, it, I started in this business 30 years ago. Drew's uh, newer, newer to the 10, game. <laughs> 10 years ago. But um, it's gotten increasingly difficult in some respects and a whole lot easier in others. The Internet has been, I think, one of the best things that's happened to Broadway because the biggest, one of the biggest problems that people have across the country is access. It seems difficult to get your hands on tickets, and it's becoming easier and easier. So people from across the country are coming to New York with their tickets in hand because of the Internet. Well, you said, Nancy, that you get involved from the very beginning. How early in the process of a show being produced are you, in fact, involved? Is it as quickly as the producer gets the rights to something they bring you yeah. in, Drew? Is that I, absolutely. We're brought in as early, I think, as they know they need us. And oftentimes before that, when the show is still being formed, there's usually a script. There's rarely anything else to see. And one of the unusual things about that is we're sort of the coming attractions, as it were, of Broadway. So before there's anything else to see, part of our job is to get out there how to think about a show, how a show wants to present itself, and what a show might be to a lot of people. So what is the process of breaking down? You know, you, a producer comes to you. They say they've got a show. Is there, is there a model that you use to break down a show and decide what the, the key selling point is? I, again, every show is different. But sometimes we're involved in it in a, so early that what we're doing is helping the producers raise money. So we will be called in to create a campaign when the show doesn't exist in the hopes that it is not just the script that they're sending to the backers, but also the marketing campaign, the advertising logo and look 
copy line, if you will, that helps the people who are going to invest in the show have a vision of what the show is. As for the process, you read the script, you talk about it, you talk to the producers about what they see, hopefully the director or anybody who's signed anybody on. Anybody can find the set design, costume design, anything you can see to help you understand what you'll find will be on stage. Set design is crucial. I find talking to set designers is one of the most rewarding ways to go about this because they have a visual idea. And another thing that really helps – I'm sorry, Nancy. Another thing that really helps is if we're in sync with those other people, then when we finally make what we make, hopefully you've got buy-in from all the people. Because the worst thing in the world is when the people who are making a show feel like what we're making doesn't represent where they're going. So we're trying to have that match. But, of course, often much with – what they're making may not exist yet. So we're trying to get from them what it will be so we can figure out from that what could turn into an advertising campaign because we can't represent all the elements of what a show is. So what's an appropriate way to boil down what the show is going to be? The worst thing that I think we've ever done on a show is get it wrong. And then when you see the show, because it actually, nothing could kill your sales faster than for us to advertise a show unlike what the show turns out to be. But doesn't somebody say to you, this isn't what our show is, one of the producers, well, the writers, as whoever? As soon as they really know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, they, I mean but it's a process. As people Absolutely. make shows, also they discover things. They find things. It's not that they aren't savvy at what they do. Oftentimes it's just that it's a surprise to them that the balance turns out to be more of a romance than a comedy or more of a comedy than a romance or more of a drama with a little bit of humor in it, but not so much. And a show changes. A show changes out of town. It show changes in previews. I mean, I have worked on a show that actually Drew worked on as well, and they wanted the poster really early. And I said, you're too early. And they said, no, nothing's going to change. Well, from the time we did the first go-round of posters, they changed the focus from the, male, from the female lead to the male lead. So everything that we had that stressed the girl now had to stress the guy. That's a pretty big change. Was that because they reoriented the story or they cast a stronger actor than the actress was? So they focused it on him. It was somewhat whimsical. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't say it's really either of those things. They changed their mind. And I worked on a show where I thought – and I'm trying to think if it's also a show that you worked on maybe. That happens very rarely. But I worked on a show that we sold in a particular direction because I thought what people really wanted was a romantic angle. This is actually on them, Dance of the Vampires. When Michael Crawford was cast, I thought, well, there's never been a successful horror show on Broadway. I make the case absolutely that Fan of the Opera, which Nancy sold so well, is a romance. And that's there's no horror there. It's, it's all about a romance. And so – I knew that Michael's people wanted to see him in a romantic leading role, and people here don't think of him as the Benny Hill type person he sometimes is in England. So we were working on that show, making this dark sort of, you know, kind of romantic night kind of a poster. And we had a really – I did a direct mail piece of Michael, and I think we had maybe an $8 million advance, which at the time was pretty good, particularly for that genre. And then then the show happened. And then the show, when I saw the show, I I was breathless. I thought – Oh my God! I've invited everyone to a romance, and I just hit them in the face with a pie. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, it's just a completely different kind of a much heavier farcical elements than we realized were going to be there, um, and that was not good for their sales because there was a huge switch out. There were other problems, obviously, but the expectation I led them to believe. What I like to say is. I think maybe there was a point where Broadway shows, and I think that point precedes both Nancy and I, a Broadway show poster told you what was going to happen. And now I think we're telling you how it's going to feel to go. We're making an emotional promise saying it'll be funny, it'll be dark, it'll be romantic, it'll be intellectually stimulating. 
So, so, so that's what I think we do now. And so if we get that part wrong, then all the signals are switched. So when this show turned out to be different than what you expected, did you then have to change your advertising? Or did you – was it too late it then? It was too late by then. It was too late. It's a, it it's a real game of too. managing expectations. Uh-huh. You have to promise enough to get them there, but not more than the show delivers or not, as Drew puts it, something different than what the show delivers. It's a real, it's a real fine line that we walk. We have to be honest in the communication and we have to – if a show is a drama – with a little bit of laughter, the producers are quite likely to say, sell the humor, sell the humor. And you say, no, that's the surprise. The surprise is the humor, and the surprise is what people talk about. Word of mouth is the point at which the expectations have been exceeded. When something is satisfying, you walk out and you talk about something else. When something is a little more than you thought it was going to be, you talk about it. And you talk about it at the water cooler. We work with a fraction of the dollars that a McDonald's works with in the same marketplace or even – or a film. And we cost so much more. You would think we would have to spend more money to do it. The reason we don't and the reason we can do our jobs is because you don't talk about the hamburger that you had yesterday at the water cooler. But you will talk about a show you see, especially if you went thinking you were getting something terrific and you got something extraordinary. But also the other difference is McDonald's can sell more and more hamburgers. That's they can right. sell as many hamburgers as people walk in the door, whereas in a Broadway theater, only 1,000 or 1,500 or whatever the seating capacity of the theater is, that's the number that can attend at any given performance. It's so virtually have... un-American. Right. So we you... have a ceiling on how many units we can sell every week. Right. I mean, that's and not a bu- fair. And a budget for advertising is often formulaically based on how many seats you have. I mean, people – I don't know where that started, but from a long time ago, people said, how many seats we got? Let's figure out our gross potential. That gives us this for advertising. So there's a very direct correlation between the dollars that we have to work with. I mean, producers are more creative than that, and people will decide where they want to push and pull. But that, that's, um, that's the finite amount that we can do. In setting the expectations for shows, I'm, I'm really curious. Um, you're both, as John said in the introduction, you are the top of the field. But I've always heard, Nancy, that your particular strength personally was copywriting. And Drew, you come from a, a specifically a design background. It's both our backgrounds is writing and design. So when you're approaching shows, Nancy, is your approach first verbal? Is yours first visual? Or has that all blurred now in a single process? I think it's blurred a little in that we both own agencies. We both run agencies. So, I mean, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, would I run the agency? I would have said, no, I don't want to know about media. I don't want to know about billing. I've learned all about that on the job with a discipline that says, if the sh- if you don't do a good job, your client's going to go out of business. So it's it's a really a, a lot of hats that we wear. It's probably why Drew has so many different names on his website because he <laughs> because is all those things. I still love words. I still love to write a radio spot. I think when you write a radio spot, that's all you have. And to me, the best way to find a good copy line is to write a good radio spot, play it, down. and you hear it. I mean, it comes right out of the spot. So basically write a good radio spot first, then let the rest of the campaign evolve from that? Well, Amadeus is a, is a case in point where the, the line was just everything you've heard is true. And it's, it's based upon the two actors, the Venticelli whispering in the beginning of the show. And it's lifted right out of the show. They whispered for a while. And then I said, everything you've heard is true. And it, that's what I mean about it comes right out. But 
the promise is really in the show. If we can get out what people love about the Broadway theater, if we can encapsulate that that thing that they that makes it special, either in art or words in a television spot. Again, every show's different. I did a direct mail piece once for a show called Steel Pier, and if it had never opened, it would have been the biggest hit I ever handled because the direct mail sold like you couldn't believe. Because you had all the pieces that they needed to buy that way, the pedigree. I mean, basically, every show probably has print, often has radio, and and many now also also have TV and certainly internet all the way through. So we're deciding what element we think will be our lead strength. And that comes back a little earlier to what element of the show is the lead strength. So if you're doing Moving Out, as Nancy did, I mean, if you're not featuring that Billy Joel music, then what what are you doing? So, of course, you're going to embrace radio in a strong way there versus, say – I don't know, democracy, and you're working on that, or Copenhagen, where you've got a lot of complex ideas, or even Edward Albee's The Goat, the the best plays are the most, uh, let me see, they're the least clear as to exactly the idea you're trying to tell. And I, that's probably the hardest work that we do, is trying to express the right pieces there. But there you might be looking more for copy to sell what you're doing. Um, I think probably also as an art director, as a background, I've had to – that I've got and that I kind of had down a while ago. So I work much harder on the other pieces um, because that part – it's very easy to rely on that. And the Times is very expensive and print is very expensive and it doesn't always do the pieces that you want. If we can set a tone with the art, like if I can make the art funny and the show's funny, well, then I'm halfway there. But – um, I don't think that I start with the art any more than I think Nancy starts with the copy. I think we probably start with what about this show is really, really engaging to us. And because we work on a lot of different shows, I know even when we don't talk about it, we start with a strategy that places this particular show in the landscape. I mean, think about a page in the New York Times if there were a page that had an ad for Coke, Dr. Pepper, 7-Up, and Sprite all on the same page. That wouldn't exist. Those, those competitive clients wouldn't buy it. But we do that. We have to do that because that's where people look for the information. Right. And so we always keep in mind where the other people are spending their money where the other shows are putting their emphasis. And we try to keep it – I mean, I, I don't think that there's a certain look to our campaigns. I don't think there's a certain thing that would identify one show as ours. We try to make it the shows, the specific shows. As opposed to the agency look. Absolutely. I used to get told that they, people could tell our ads probably when we first started because we were so new to it. And I really worked hard to have that not be the case because I don't think that's a big compliment. It should look like the show, not like us. It shouldn't look like my designers. It should look like something unique and new. Um, we used to – before I did Broadway, we did cable television. And that was a good trainer for this because at one point we actually worked on Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network at the same time. And you really had to figure out very quickly what was going to make each one uniquely different. And that's what we have to do on every show. Why is this one? What's the unique selling proposition, which is sort of sales speak? But what's different about this than anything else that's out there in general, that's out there right now, and even what's coming up very soon? And then there's the added pressure Boy, it sounds like our jobs are really tough. I know. We like to There's the added pressure of what we do every time out of the box is have to sell the concept of theater in the first place because, again, we're asking people to do a lot. Get up out of your chair, go down to 45th and Broadway at 8 o'clock, park your car for 25 bucks, and 
eat in a restaurant that's going to cost you another 50. We're not, not to mention the ticket. We're not asking them to do something that's easy. But we are delivering on the promise. People, after they see a show, they're happy. happy to see another. They're hopefully, happy. Hopefully they're happy. Well, they are happy. How I think they're happy with the experience. They may not even love that show, but they love going to the theater. The people that we talk to, God bless them, because they, again, they're the people you talk to. But again and again, they are the heart of the theater. They keep it going. But can you – you're talking about the people who are in some ways the diehards, the people yeah. who love it. A show survives only so long on the people who just want to see everything that's out there, the people who frequent the chat rooms and the people who you know, buy every cast album that's out there. Mm-hmm. As you talk about the challenge of selling people on the concept of theater, do you have that opportunity? Because what we've been talking about is how you sell the show. Can you – can you sell the concept of theater at the same time as you're just convincing them to see this show on this night in this theater? At the- We've both been able to address new audiences and yeah. bring people to the theater using the show, but people who don't have that diehard habit, people who go maybe once a year, maybe once every two years. In my case, I've sort of, because Disney is a client, specialized in family-oriented entertainment, and people are dying to take their kids to the theater. As expensive as it is, they know that something special is happening when they pry that kid away from the computer screen (laughs) and introduce him to something that's live. I mean, talk about a reality format. We invented it. We're the first interactive art form, if you want to look at it that way. And kids respond. I mean, for the first time they go, it's like, wait a minute, they're real. And that's a very gratifying experience for a parent to have. In Drew's case, younger audiences have flocked to Avenue Q to rent. I mean, people... That was probably the, my first introduction was bringing that in because that was our background, was sort of MTV in that world. And now, actually, I would say the thing I'm most proud of both Nancy and I the last 10 years, I would say, has been about when I started doing this stuff, there was still that, out, that article every three months about how Broadway's dying and Broadway's dying and Broadway's dying and Broadway's getting too old and Broadway's dying was nice for a change this year at the beginning of the season to have the stories go out saying how our numbers were up. But I think one of the big things that's changed is there is a real sense of national theater. And we've had – we've both had big successes all around the country, really sort of bringing out the idea that the wicked that you see in Chicago is every bit as good as the wicked you see here. The Chicago that I show you in L.A. is every bit as good as the one here and sort of broadening that base. And part of that is you know, talking to people beyond just the super avid, the person who's going three, four, five, six shows. Although I did do focus groups for a Manhattan Theater Club once where people had written down – when you do focus groups, you can tell how many shows they've seen. And people had written down – one had written 112 and one had written 106. And I said it was a typo on the 106 and challenged it. I didn't even notice 112. And I said the zero is in here. This is 16. And it wasn't. It was in fact – completely true that these super, super edits were seeing over 100 nights of theater a year. But is there a danger in the what you call the super avids kind of leading the pack and and who do you who do you sell to do you sell to the super can you can you you don't, you don't have to sell to the super you don't super have to sell avids. the super avids they don't have to do anything their whole goal is to be you the first tell them it's and there. tell everybody they're, else they're the people who at the first preview are text messaging to their friends how the show is going you don't have to do a thing you we have a rabid yeah. fan base and that's that's great, but those people don't communicate with real people. They communicate with other rabid fans, so it stays somewhat insular. The real right. trick is when you get the, the the mom 
from, you know, New Jersey who's just taken two kids and sprung for it and tells the other mothers this was the best evening. The best line I ever got out of a focus group was a woman who said that the reason the the experience was so rewarding was because the They'd all talked about the show in the car on the way home, mm, and we nice. were all talking about the same thing. Yeah. That that they had never watched television. I guess they didn't go to the movies together, but the reality was that experience had given them a language, and it was it was goosebump time behind the glass. Yeah. It was also special. It wasn't a movie. It wasn't a TV show. As I think right. you said, it's a live live people up there on stage performing. Just for you. Just for them. Only yeah. at eight o'clock tonight. I, I suppose the bigger challenge then is not the avid fan, but the occasional fan, yes. getting yes, a person that is the to, to commit to spending the money and going out. Right. Because yes. those are the people who are going to have it run for ten or fifteen years at this point. Absolutely, and all, and which is now the goal of a hit, which is in a new goal, by the way. I mean, that goal didn't really exist before Nancy started doing what she did, and and, and I added to it. So that's that's the goal now to make it happen. Also, we've got 32 houses. Is that how mm-hmm. many? 32 Broadway houses going. So obviously there are many, many choices. So if you're talking to the person who goes once a year for their anniversary, we're all fighting for that one night that that woman comes in. So that's 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 tougher. Well, both of you have challenges with some of your long-running shows, Drew, in the case of Chicago and Rent. They've been running about a decade each. They're going to celebrate their 10th anniversary this year. Nancy Fanto of the Opera just celebrated 18 years. How do you reposition those shows that have been running a long time, get people to come see them either again or for the first time? Well, I started with the long-running shows with Grease. That was the, when I first started out in the business. Grease became the longest-running show. Then a chorus line topped Grease. Cats topped a chorus line. And Phantom has topped Cats. It's an interesting... Uh, they missed top Cats and then... No, Cats no. ran longer than Right, right. Lemis was the first one. Yeah. Sorry. Lemis topped a chorus line. Right. Les Mis top. Yeah, I left Les Mis out. I'm sorry. Right. That's okay. But, but um, it's not so much repositioning or, or reinventing. It's reaching. I mean, we, we reach farther geographically. We reach farther demographically. We encourage people to come again, bring someone. I mean, the, the best thing that ever happened to me and maybe to Drew too was the, the movie campaign for Phantom of the Opera yeah. came along at – at exactly the right moment in the history. We had gone out into the street to talk to people, and we'd asked them, do you remember your first time? And they said, first time? We come every year. And we had testimonials, the likes of which we'd never heard. So we did a great big campaign, remember your first time. And it was starting to creep up. And now we're looking at a little bit of momentum. To this momentum comes a movie campaign that spent millions of dollars in the New York market on media that I could never have afforded with the same title treatment, virtually the same visuals as you have in the television commercial for the Broadway show. And it took my box off. It just took off. And then as just as that was dying down, they released the DVD. Now you have a whole bunch of television commercials by the DVD. And all people take away, they're not paying attention. They just take away one message. The name of the show. Phantom of the Opera. And this is in marked contrast to the days probably 20, 25 years ago and more when shows might be made into films. In some cases, the contract was the film couldn't be released until the yeah. show had closed. Absolutely. So and people still are worried about that. It's amazing. I said, no, 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 no. This is going to be fantastic for you. Let's go. Because I've had this experience on Chicago and then now Rent. And Chicago actually didn't use – every time it happens, we have some theory as to, well, maybe – when it happened with Chicago, we thought maybe the difference is the movie's really good. I don't think – don't want to offend anyone. I don't think anyone thought a chorus line, the movie, really captured what happened on the stage with a chorus line. But Chicago did a great job. 
But then we went on with Rent, which I'm not saying it wasn't a good movie, but it, it was almost, to my mind, too literal to what was happening on stage and didn't invent And ultimately wasn't and a great commercial helped, success. And, but it still helped the show tremendously. And, and Chicago didn't use materials that looked like mine, and Rent used materials that looked exactly like mine. So we did well throughout it all. And the opera, Phantom of the Opera movie was not well received, but it had a gangbusters effect. So it really probably has more to do with the marketing campaign for the movie than it has to do with the movie itself. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people see the marketing campaign that will never see the movie. But that, as it turns out, might go to see the show. As we, as we talk about unique selling proposition and the elements in the film, there, there's something we haven't brought up yet, which is stars. And... To what degree, obviously, stars can be great leverage, but can stars also be a double-edged sword when you start selling a show with stars and maybe the stars aren't there later on? Yeah, it's, it's, it's rough when a show is built around a star and the star leaves or the two stars leave on the same day <laughs> and the person <laughs> who's nearby. brought in is not well-reviewed or not well-received. I mean, it can be a double-edged sword. It still answers the fundamental question that every consumer says when you say, who's Three Days of Rain about? is coming to Broadway. Who's, who's in, in it? it? And when you say, Julia Roberts, you got a sale. End I, of discussion. I had a great – I took a class actually at Harvard of all places and I had – the one thing I got out of it was all um, – all branding is risk reduction or all that's, – that's what I got out of it, which is basically that everyone's wondering, what's this going to be? I've got a lot of money on the line. What's this experience going to be like? And so a star is a brand. And if you say Julia Roberts is in this, well, I have an idea of how she might be. You know, and even better is when you connect what they think that star is bringing with the subject matter, which which is why a comedic star in a comedic role is an easier sell than, say, Kelsey Grammer in Macbeth. But, you know, and, and we've, we've lived through all those. But basically, it is a double-edged sword, but I'll take it in the beginning because what you're hoping to do – in the beginning, every show is new. And even if it's coming from a film, what will the show be like? I've got expectations to meet. I really like this movie. Or I don't really even remember that movie, but I'm kind of familiar. So everyone's unsure. The thing they might be sure of is the star. And so you're hoping through the run of the star, you're making them more assured of the show itself. So that you're, you're switching your brand from the person to the show itself. And, and that's, what you're, that's what you're trying to do all the way through, I think. In some way, and sometimes shows go the other way. I mean, Chicago started as the show was the star, and now we use stars in a greater sense. Rent never was about stars, and they sort of did well almost from being an anti-star position. Um, you know, the producers, which I think you know, was one of the ones that started off with stars, but they weren't the guaranteed box office that they are now. I mean, they through that experience, they became the mega stars at the time. I, I, I'd be willing to bet there was a fairly even balance between Mel Brooks being the star and those two performers. And through the show, they've exploded into what becomes sort of a guaranteed box office. It was. It's also, it helps when the title is a known commodity. I mean, Matthew and Nathan sold like gangbusters from the first ad, but they were in The Producers, mm-hmm. and you went, okay, I got I it. Bialy, Stock, and Bloom, I can see it. I know what it's going to be like. And a, a known title is, is a much easier sell than something that they've never heard of, even if it's something like Jekyll and Hyde. Okay, well, you know when you're saying Jekyll and Hyde? I kind of get it. I get it. Well, you know yeah. what the story is, yeah. essentially. Yeah. But if you're working at Omnium Gatherum, which I did, <laughs> which was a really fun play and got a review, but, you know, that's harder, trying to explain what's going to happen there. So, so how, how did you? 
I mean, where, 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 where was the angle? Of something I'm not sure we successfully did. Oh. I mean, you're trying to bring tone into the other materials so that if oh, yeah. it's – that was kind of a comedic satire. So we made a poster and we made radio ads and we made things that express that. You sort of go by the title then and you sort of tell people the rest. Um, De La Guarda at the time was had like three titles. Visha Visha was the name of the group and De La Guarda was the name of the show and no one knew what either one of those things meant. So we had to really go to almost an entirely visual and frankly, we had to wait for word of mouth to catch up. Some things start right away. Some things take time. I mean, it's a hard thing to say to people, but it may take it's a little while truth. for everyone to hear what Especially everyone else is you're saying. Especially in a small theater. Yeah, you sometimes. Take the number of people who saw it last night and imagine that they go out and half of them tell other people. It's going to take a while till you reach the tipping point. Or where you have a show that a lot of people in, in the know, so to speak, are saying that show shouldn't be on Broadway. That show, Avenue Q, should have stayed off mm-hmm. Broadway. It was mm-hmm. a better show, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. And suddenly, it's a big turnaround, which drew your your agency was, was behind. Well, how, suddenly how, isn't really true. I mean, so it's a slow build piece by piece by piece. The one thing that Nancy and I look at is the advance on a show, and, and maybe this is too sp- industry-specific, but if a show is working – it will start to sell more, even if it's just a tiny bit more, every day. And Avenue Q did that from the very first day. That you know, we we, we had a we had a, a really fairly meager advance for for a musical on Broadway, particularly one that Ben Brantley had loved downtown and sold out at the Vineyard. I mean, that's how that show came in. So for what that was. There were big risks going on there. But every day, it went up a little bit from the day before. And so you knew if you just hung on long enough. And there were other things that we did that I'm really proud of in terms of, you know, it's sort of like a ripple effect you, you know, or, or a bullseye. Nancy and I market to this group first. Then you go outer ring, outer ring, and you keep going out. Even if you're 10 years later, you're now out to a bigger ring, but it just keeps going. Now, Drew, Drew the radio audience can't see what you're doing. You're making like a, like a, bullseye, a bullseye, like, a, like a, a, a target. Yes. What, what is the inner ring, the middle ring, the outer ring? The inner ring? ring is the super avid, which hopefully they're just coming because you shouldn't have to spend much money to reach people them. People want to see everything there is. Yeah. yeah, people who regularly go to the Broadway theater. One of the things that, uh, that Nancy and I both have found is you can't effectively spend money to convince people to go to the theater who aren't going in the beginning. It's just not a good way, good way to spend your money. To convince people you've never been to the theater before but will spend enough advertising money to get you there, it doesn't work like that. Parents take children. You know, neighbors take neighbors. That's how that happens. I so we don't try and do that. I could show you, but I have a favorite way to illustrate this. Imagine that the amount of money that you have to spend is the amount of energy your hand can push a pencil across the table. If you start with a pencil that's way back there and you have this much energy, you're just going to get it a little closer to the edge. You've got to start with people who are poised, who have some interest in going, so yes. that when you put that money against them, you push them over and they buy that ticket. Right. Dealing with people way in the back who are having a hard time deciding to go to the theater in the first place isn't a good way to begin. So the bullseye effect is that you begin with people who already go to the theater a couple times a year. If you're working on a musical, you're looking at people who go to several musicals a year or plays who do the same thing. And you're talking to them. You're probably talking about Manhattan and within a 100-mile radius of Manhattan in the very beginning, unless you're starting out of town, in which case you're doing the same thing around that world. And then um, as the show begins, you start going out a little further and a little further, which might mean broadcast. Um, You know, suddenly you've got a radio spot and you're talking out more miles, more people, a broader demographic. Or maybe you start off on a smaller radio station to that that true avid. Here it would be – you know, you know, something very, very tight and then go out, out, out. 
um, your audience is probably you know within that early circle that thank God we get and, and we count on. The interesting thing about these people is we do know a lot of information about them more than a packaged goods company Absolutely. knows about those people because we're part of their habit. We know what show they saw last. We know how much they paid for the ticket. We know where they live. We know how many times they go to the theater. So it's easy for us to tailor our message. As a result, when we do direct mail or email, our our results look like direct mail hall of fame, but it's really because we can target very, very carefully so that we know what you want to see. And all we need to do is give you a price point that will make you buy a ticket or give you some other incentive to go. In some cases, it's just information. Well, as we talk about this, of course, we're talking about how do you present a show? How do you go after the first, the core audience? And you have a period of time, certainly, that you can create the perception in the way that you want. But it's been mentioned a couple of times, glancingly so far, but at a certain point, you have this avalanche of other people's perceptions of what has been presented. And how much can advertising, what happens with the advertising and the marketing of a show once you have the reviews? Certainly, if the reviews are great, they launch you. If the reviews are not... Not necessarily. Not anymore. Avalanche, well, I think let's is talk a, about like that. The wrong I've made word. I see a few avalanches in my time. Then I've made They're a presumption. Tell, tell me, tell well, us about know, the effect of reviews, the, the good and bad. Newspapers are readership is declining dramatically, and the the skepticism in the world is on a real rise. People don't believe critics any more than they believe used car salesmen these days. There are as many shows running on Broadway today with bad reviews as with good. Right. What does it say about – we all know that our most powerful critic is Ben Brantley of the New York Times and it's kind of a fascinating thing that we have Wicked, which he was ruthless to, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which he was ruthless to, Color Purple, which he was ruthless to. There's actually a fourth. I was thinking so about this. So is this the Mama best Mia? thing that's happened to Mama, you guys? Well, he was good to Mama Mia. Is was, this the best thing that's happened to you guys? What, that as, as, as No, but as there's been a diminishment – Perhaps in the on, credibility of critics, it gives you more coming. of an opportunity? That's been coming. Again, the benefit I, of doing this for 30 years, the, the benefit of 30 years is that I can see, you know, when, when Frank Rich wrote for the New York Times and, and before that, oh, what was his name, Richard Eder? I mean, him, Clive, Clive Barnes. Barnes. People, you know, hated the New York Times critic. Nothing is ever going to change. It doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter who right, it they're is. They're just going to hate. They're going to hate the New York Times critic. The reality is, we both have shows that are blockbusters that critics didn't help. Maybe gave a momentary setback in that the producers had a bad day or a bad night. But the reality is, Wicked was a show that I would like to take. Tons of credit for it. But the reality is, like Avenue Q, it built and built and built and built. And teenage girls, gay men, mothers with daughters, grandmothers with grandsons. Fans of Wizard of Oz. Fans of Wizard of Oz, people who never cared about the Wizard of Oz. They loved it and they talked about it. Word of mouth is not – it's it's not one avenue to the success of a Broadway show. It's the avenue. Sort of the beauty of what we do actually and the credibility of what we do is you can't actually fake it. You cannot take something that people aren't liking and throw enough advertising money. And That's believe so me, right. we could do a whole show on examples that have tried. 
You can't make that happen. What we try and do is take – if the fire is burning this high – I'm going to start motioning since you can't see me. But if you've got a 10-inch fire, we've got to get it to a 20-inch fire. And that's our job all the time. We're the bellows. Take what's happening <laughs> and keep – very good analogy. We keep going bigger, bigger. There are an occasional show that it just – the avalanche does come down and you just get out of the way. And those are usually the shows where there's not a whole lot of advertising. We both worked on limited runs like mine was Nicole Kidman who took her clothes off in the middle of the play. Well, we ran one ad. I knew we'd run one ad. Thank you very much. We'd you don't run have to be one a genius ad for Julia Roberts. Work. Right. So mm-hmm. one ad for there Matthew are those. And those would be the, the avalanches. Couple. And usually really they're limited runs. Yeah. A show that if you want your musical to run 10 years, it's never an avalanche. It's a constant – Growth of a new audience, a new audience reaching out, reaching out. I remember after having a Q won the Tony doing a focus group for another show in New Jersey and having people tell me that Wicked had won the Tony. So luckily on Avenue Q, we have a strategy of dollars to success and the size of a theater where we could in fact – you know, blow the bellows slowly, and that's what we do. We never really attempted to go out there and smash it out of the park because we only have so many seeds we can sell anyways, and that show was going clean. And there's only so far in advance that people will buy tickets. Right. I mean, with The Lion King, when that opened on Broadway, we pushed those limits pretty far, and they were buying two years in advance. But after 9-11, people determined that they weren't positive they were going to be here two years from now. And so you can only ask them to to wait so long from the time they purchase the ticket till the time that they see the show. And because there's a fixed number and, and a, a limited amount of time that they'll wait, you have to spend very judiciously. Yes. Uh, now, you talk about word of mouth. How do you get feedback? How do you know whether your advertising is working? How do you know what the word of mouth is? How, how do you get feedback to what you're doing? I mean, you go mainly – I'll tell you one thing you don't do is go read the chat rooms. I don't do that and I forbid my clients to do it. And if anyone tries to use those in a marketing meeting, I just say, not using that, not using that. And I'm glad that people are in there writing to each other but it's one or two people and you can't tell what they're feeling. You go to the show and you listen to what people say and you ask your neighbor – and you ask I, – I mentioned earlier, I asked these waitresses in Maine and Nancy – who did you it, say it, you speak to? I speak to my mother every day. <laughs> but the fact is take a show like Jersey Boys. Mm-hmm. Go, to a, go, to, go to see it and you'll know everything you need to know about the audience. You'll see that there are men enjoying a musical, which doesn't happen a lot. And that it's a secret weapon of a lot of shows lately. Yeah, and that there is a whole universe of people that remember that music, love it, and love seeing it performed the way it was performed when they first heard it. As opposed to a show like All Shook Up, people loved the music, but they did not necessarily love the way it was performed in the show. It's actually an interesting point that we realize if you go back and look at the supposed revival of jukebox music or what did well and what didn't, there's a really clear line, which is if you present that music the way people want to hear it, those shows have succeeded. And if you decide to move away from that, those shows have really, really struggled. And it's almost entirely true, starting with Mamma Mia. Mamma Mia, Benny and Bjorn, the the two Bs of ABBA, were – absolutely ruthless, making sure that every single arrangement was an ABBA arrangement. So that if you hear the cast album or you listen to ABBA Gold, you can get seriously confused if you're not a real ABBA nut. Mm -hmm. They have the right sound. And Jersey Boys has made a science of capturing that sound. Okay, so you know that Jersey Boys is working, you know that Mamma Mia is working. You sit in the theater, you see the reaction of the audience. How do you know that your advertising campaign is working for those shows? (laughs) Well, I mean, if it if it weren't, there would be there would be some diminishment of the response at the box office. You would see if right. we were. I had a show once upon a time called Grind, 
I don't know whether you remember it, but it was a long time ago, and I must say my television commercial was beautiful. And it bore, maybe like your campaign for Dance of the Vampires, it bore no resemblance to the show. (laughs) And what happened was the spike at the box office was dramatic. It was in the days when there were only seven channels, right? So you could put a television spot on at 1110 across the board, and And you'd know the next morning that everyone who watched television last night had seen it. So you would see huge spikes at the box office. And after the commercial went on, we had two great weeks. And then we went farther down than we had been before we put it on. Because all of those people who we dragged in went out and told their friends, you know, it's not as good as the commercial. (laughs) So you have to be very careful of that. If we were doing something wrong, it would show up. We look at the numbers just so everybody knows, and I've never seen this in any other field I've worked in, and I've worked on some marketing and some other entertainment fields before this. We're very intimately involved with the numbers. We see the box offices come in. We see the wraps. We know what's happening on a Tuesday versus a Wednesday, and we're looked to to change that sometimes on a very micro level as well as a macro level. And you're so right that no other industry is this accountable or this integrated into the process. When my agency was acquired by Omnicom – three years ago. And I think one of the things that impressed them, I hope one of the things that impressed them about us was how intimately we were involved in the finances and the management of those finances of all of our clients. We're virtually the in-house marketing director, if you will, for many of these shows. And also your your clients are essentially opening the books to you, which I don't think would normally happen. Well, would they it? don't necessarily there are open books, the books. They do not, but, 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 but the, the sales you, figures... You know, you know what the sales are. The sales, the sales figures, figures are published the sales every figures week are for everyone yeah. to see. We're also so much more intimately involved. I mean, I was working on an album for Aerosmith, and that sounds really exciting, but the reality is you don't meet them. You don't talk to them. I have one phone call across a a parking lot from Steven Tyler, which I tell people isn't that exciting, but the reality is your connection to the product is so much more distant than this. I mean, I remember in the beginning, I couldn't believe it when producers would ask me what I thought of the show. I thought, well, I didn't make this show. I don't know how to comment. I want to... Now, it's... Everybody's very intimately involved. And so people talk to you about, is the show working? What's your feelings about the structure, the marketing? Where's that working? What's our audience like? We're really in the middle of That's the joy of it, actually, is that you can really – I felt like I was – when I was working on an MTV piece, it was like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark where they go in the back and that warehouse is there and there's just all that, all that priceless material that no one will ever see again. Well, that's what I thought I was making it was wonderful things that would just get thrown up in a pile. But on Broadway, when you make it work – it works and it has a real effect right away. People go see the show. And your people you who meet work them, for you, they talk they feel to you responsible. about it. So connected. we have teams that feel like they work for the show more than they work for us and I like it that way. Yeah, I don't mind I don't mind if someone feels a greater allegiance to the to spam a lot than to Sereno Coin because I know that that gets the job done. Omnicom has a senior management program where you all go to camp for a week with Harvard Business School professors. And it's fascinating. But at 6 o'clock when classes are over, I find that there are people saying to me, so are there any openings? And I said, honestly, you don't want to do this. We don't pay very well. (laughs) And they said, yeah, but you talk to the to the head guy, right? To the right. producer, the director, the star. I mean, we have to get approval from Julia Roberts on the poster for Three Days of Rain. So what are you going to do? You're going to ask her, so Julia, what do you think? And it's really good when I mean, she says, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> Oprah Winfrey, touch my knee. Yeah. What can I tell you? I mean, it's very exciting. To, and many of these people are very savvy. So on a marketing level, this is much, much better than selling mufflers. I mean, this, this is really a joy. Or pills. Right. 
What's also interesting, I think, is the fact that, as I think you, Nancy, pointed out, um, on the page of a newspaper, you don't see an ad for Coke and Pepsi and whatever the other beverages, 7-Up, whatever, whereas in a double page of the New York Times, you see 8, 9, 10, 12 different shows. Right. You two guys are the only game in town. You're the two yeah. agencies, basically, that There's handle... There's one other. There actually well, is another. Essentially the only game in town that uh-huh. handles most of the advertising. How do you then deal with all these different shows? I mean, you know what's going on in each show. It's kind of like you have a lot in your head. Are you ever tempted to say to one show, well, don't do this because or that sort oh, of thing? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's only it, – when a full-page ad is running and you have another show that's running a full-page ad, you say to them, you're going to get on there. page five unless you want to wait a week. What do you think? I think you should wait a week. There's no mm-hmm. urgency here. Right. You advise each one as if – for that moment, you're right, right with what they need, and you do the same all the way through. But there is a kind of transparency that I think helps people more than hurts them, that we let them know that, you know, maybe that's not the best day for you. We let them know what the other's doing. It also actually, for me, I find it really helps honing the branding, that if you know that you've got this show, this show, this show, this show, and what that needs to mean in this season, it means I absolutely have to figure out why each one of them is different than the other and how all your materials are going to reflect that point of difference. You know, how is this music? I mean, we've had situations several times now where we've had all four plays in the top and the Tony play category. And it's really unique when those people are running for Tonys to be running the advertising campaign for all four. Um, it's only happened once or twice, but it has. But, but the equivalent, that's just a metaphor for the larger. And what you just have to do is do a really good job of knowing why each one is different and stay there and remind people what it is that's unique about them that only they can have. If it's something that they have but someone else has it too, then it isn't unique. And, and we and see that all the time. sometimes we have to convince them of this because I remember with a, a show called The Mystery of Edwin Drood, they mm. wanted to sell it as a music hall musical. And I said, but that's not what's unique. It's the Solve It Yourself musical. Yeah, but people like music hall musicals. I said, but it doesn't distinguish you from the crowd. You've got to go with the thing that makes you special. The most amazing thing that happens to us, and I know it happens to Nancy without even asking her, is people bringing you something with a real unique quality and then telling you to bury the uniqueness Mm -hmm. and running away from the thing they are. You know, they'll bring you a big murder mystery, but don't make it too murder, too mystery. Or they'll bring you – it's just amazing. It happens all the time. I had a client look at a poster – which was a beautiful, beautiful shot. I mean, a, a Tiffany's kind of shot of a glass slipper, and say, I, you know, I'm just, I just don't like it. It's just too Cinderella. I said, but we're selling Cinderella. That's the show. Well, how can it be too Cinderella? I heard actually someone told me who knows us both well that Nancy once sold a poster where she put her hand over the title and said, "Without the title, you can tell what this show is." And I think that is a great, great piece mm-hmm. of advice. That you know, can you use more than just that piece? to tell people what you're looking for or, or to refine it. It does come back to expectation. You know, sometimes we're called upon with a revival with something else to change an expectation that you think it's going to be this, but we're going to show you something else. And, and that's another complicated piece of what we do. And I also find that on the reviews that we get that they come back to expectation. You can feel if the critics really, really hope that all the geniuses of the world are working on this piece mm-hmm. – uh, it's so much harder to get a good review than if it goes the other way and they're certain they're going to hate it. And then maybe – then they go, you know what? I didn't really hate it. I kind of thought it was terrific. But, you know, expectation seems to be such a big part. You've got you've to gotta have a good expectation but let people discover, as Nancy said earlier. What's really interesting is talking to you, two of you, 
you are both so passionate about what you do. I've known a lot of advertising people over the years, having worked in television for a quarter of a century before getting to radio. I don't think I've ever met people as passionate about what they do as the two of you when it comes to advertising. Well, we're se- we're selling theater. Yeah. We're yeah. Not, it's not advertising that we're passionate about. Believe me, it's you, the theatrical uh, experience. Yeah. I mean, it is selling it is, the arts is a joy versus selling mufflers. I I, I haven't else. ever had a qualm, even when I've sent someone to see a show that they didn't like. It's still better. <laughs> than sitting at home and watching a screen. And with the proliferation of electronic media, we become increasingly valuable, not less. I mean, you look at the figures from every other industry except maybe video games, and they're going down. And we're going up. Yeah, there was a beautiful piece in the Times recently that talked about that very idea. That someone wrote a nice long column about how all the electronic numbers are going down, except for live. If you account, you know, concerts, touring, all those numbers are going up because more and more, that's a unique experience you can't repeat anywhere else. So the digital age is bringing us other, a greater value for the the one time human performance. The other thing that is so remarkable about this experience is it's communal. After nine eleven, we expected things to be bad. We didn't expect them to recover as quickly as they did. Every person that we asked, how come after a week later you're here? We did a lot to get them there, but still you they mean, responded. You mean to get them back into theater? Yes, to yes. get them back into the theater. But still they responded. Why? And they said time and time again, it feels like the right place to be. I'm with my fellow New Yorkers experiencing something that is a New York treasure, and it feels right. Well, a lot of that right is being with other people. When you sit in the dark and you collectively imagine at the same time that the cardboard tree is really the forest – and that that brings you close. I don't want to sound sacrilegious, but it's a little like church was supposed to be. We're all going to sit and have faith in the same thing at the same time. And as a result, we're going to be better for it. I think on that note, Nancy and Drew, <laughs> Nancy Coyne, CEO of Serena <laughs> Coyne, and Drew Hodges, Go in peace. CEO of SpotCo, thanks so much for being with us on Downstate Center. I learned a lot about what you folks do. It's Thank been you. fun. Thank it's you. Been fun. Thank you. Thank you both. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that all of the entertainment and media work of the American Theatre Wing, including Downstage Center, is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten. For Downstage Center, that's a wrap, and thank you.